Well, good morning to all of you. Um, my name is Mark. Drew was very kind to introduce me that way. I really do think Drew and I both would have been fired before we ruined the church. Uh, but we, we were on staff for two months, and I don't know the number of times that we were reprimanded after a meeting, but it was pretty high. Like we would walk in a meeting, and just immediately I would either text or say a joke to Drew, and then it would just go downhill from there. And we would honor the people around us with that. Um, that's a joke. So it, good, you laughed. You're picking up on. I'm. It, I'm from Iowa, so we have a dry sense of humor and just a generally boring life. And so it's good to actually be in a place with actual real things going on, like the Twin Cities. And it's really fun, guys, as well, just to show up here. First Corinthians, this book opens with this line where Paul, looking at this church in Corinth says, I give thanks to God every time I think about you because of the grace of God that has been shown to you. I feel that way about Salt City Church. I even, this is my experience this morning. I'm back at the kids check-in area because I don't know why I just ended up there. But as I walk back there at that moment, Three different couples come in with their children, all of whom my wife discipled through college. And so I'm thinking of, you know, it just is really mind-blowing. I'm taking pictures of myself with these babies, and I'm having this moment of realizing I'm like a grandfather. And this is amazing, and I'm, I'm going to be just such a great grandpa. I totally can tell. And, and <laughs> it's just going to be amazing for me. And so... Just to see what God is doing, so many of you that I know well and that I love and seeing that you're continuing forward in the faith, it is a beautiful gospel work happening here. And I hope you have a sense of that and you are grateful to God to be part of it. First Corinthians is an incredible book about a messed up, beautiful, flawed, wonderful church in Corinth. They're full of the power of God and yet also profoundly immature. It's a church that knew they had met Jesus and therefore they were set free in him. They had this newfound freedom in Jesus that just like revolutionized their lives, but they were immature in their expressions of that freedom, right? So set free from the law, set free from sin, it's almost like they were tolerating open sinful living, like flaunting this new freedom they had in Jesus. I've been set free, so hey, chapter five, what'd you read about? There's a dude in the church sleeping with his mother-in-law. And they are delighting almost in that. Like, wow, look at how open and accepting we are. Even this craziness, we're good with this. In this chapter, last chapter, the beginning of it, actually this chapter, they're taking each other to court. In our text, the, the freedom is expressing itself in a sort of sexual permissiveness that is defiling. You're going to go on and read in the book that actually they're, they're getting drunk on the communion wine. It's, it's a very unusual church. One pastor actually titled aptly his series on the book of 1 Corinthians as 1 Corinthians, Christians Gone Wild. That's kind of true. That's what these guys are like. And what happened, I think, is in the Corinthian church and in the Corinthian culture of that day, they had a definition of freedom that goes something like this. True freedom is the freedom to express myself, my inward self fully in my external world. Whatever I feel is right, true, and good for me, I should make sure that as long as I'm not hurting anybody else directly, I should live that way. Because freedom is to do whatever I want. That common definition in Corinth sounds a lot like today in America, doesn't it? 
a lot like actually the world in which you and I live right now. Because perhaps the most common mindset that we find dominantly in the culture of the West right now is a mindset we could call expressive individualism. And the central tenet of expressive individualism is that the goal of human life and human flourishing is freedom. Freedom. Freedom to take whatever I feel on the outside and make sure I express it fully and authentically, whatever I feel inside my heart, to the external world. Expressive individualism says this, if I feel like this, the world should know that I am like this and they should affirm, celebrate, and accept me. That's what expressive individualism is all about. And so any institution or church or parent or school that would tell me, no, you can't do what you want to do right now and express how you want to express that, you need to limit yourself, needs to be fought up against. I should do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody directly. I think that's not just the default mindset in Corinth. I bet it's the default mindset on the street where you live too. I think it's probably actually, for most of us, the default mindset we walked in the doors with this morning. Because you're swimming in a sea of life that says real freedom is doing what I want, when I want, how I want, as long as I don't hurt somebody else. So apart from a new idea brought to you by Scripture, brought to you by God, here's what I bet. I bet almost every one of us thinks about freedom the way the people in Corinth did. I bet that's true. But that mindset, I want to counter with the way that the Bible talks about freedom, the way that we're going to see it in this text, that true freedom for the Christian, true freedom for the person who knows Jesus is not the freedom to do whatever I want, but the freedom to do what I ought. Let me restate that. Real freedom is not freedom to do what I want to do. It's the freedom to do what I ought to do, what I'm designed by God to do. That real freedom is not indulging in whatever impulse of the body I might have in the moment. Real freedom is actually reality that by God's Spirit, I can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. I can live according to my good Father in Heaven's good and gracious design. Real freedom involves saying no to something that I might want in order to say yes to the better thing that God has for me. That's actually real freedom. The real freedom the Christian has is for the first time filled by the Spirit of God, I don't have to sin. I don't have to live for myself. I can say no to selfishness to say yes to Jesus. That's actually real freedom. And so here's my basic premise, is that both in Corinth and in America, in Iowa and in Minnesota, almost everyone that you're meeting who sees freedom as the central goal of their life has vastly misunderstood what freedom is all about and is finding themselves in their pursuit of freedom in the midst of bondage, actually. And I want to let 1 Corinthians 6 today teach us about what true freedom in Jesus is. What is real freedom? Here's the three things you're going to see. If you take notes, I give you a roadmap. Here's the roadmap. First, I want to see that true freedom is found in wise living. That's verse 12. True freedom is found in wise living. Secondly, that true freedom is found in purity. That you are free in Christ now to flee from sexual immorality, to live in purity before God and others. That's verses 13 to 18. And then ultimately, here's what true freedom is. True freedom is found glorifying God with your body. In other words, true freedom, the way Paul describes it here in 1 Corinthians 6, means you are no longer a slave to sin, 
because you have been bought by God and you are now a slave to him and to righteousness. That actually everybody serves somebody. The only question is whether you have a good master. True freedom is going to be found in serving God and glorifying him with your body. So let, let's talk about that first one. True freedom is found in wisdom, that you are free to, in Christ to live wisely. Look at verse 12 again with me, if you would, where Paul writes, all things are lawful for me. All English translations are putting that statement in, in like air quotes. All things are lawful for me. Paul is quoting a common phrase there. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything. It seems like what Paul's doing is he's taking what would be a really common Corinthian slogan. All things are lawful, permissible. Everything is allowable for me. Do whatever you want. That's kind of the slogan. Paul quotes it here. If we flip forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I won't make you go there with me. You're going to see Paul quote it again. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful for me. This, but not all things build others up. That's the point he'll make in 1 Corinthians 10. So where did they get the slogan? That's the question. Well, some people would say, and I do think there's a lot of credibility to this, that that phrase, everything is lawful for me, almost like anything goes, might very well have been like the motto of the city of Corinth. You know, like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Come to Iowa, meet some hogs and get bored. You know, that's our state slogan. Um, I... I'm throwing all these anti-Iowa jokes out because I know Minnesotans think that this place is cooler than that. We're all in the Midwest. None of us are on the coast. Deal with it. It's not that great. Okay. What happens if Vegas stays in Vegas? Here's the slogan for the ch town of Corinth. Come to Corinth where anything goes. All things are lawful here. Do what you want. There's also a, a, an aspect in which the teaching of Paul, though, echoes that Corinthian slogan but gives it new meaning. Paul regularly, one of his themes is that all who know Jesus are set free in Christ. You're free from the law. Galatians chapter 5. You've been called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't let your newfound freedom become an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another in love. Freedom in Jesus, that you are set free from sin and set free from the standards of the law being the way you relate to God is a Pauline theme. It's part of Paul's literature all over the place. That you're not made right by moral standards, but by Jesus. Therefore, you're free. So it seems like what happens, though, is the people in Corinth pick up on this dominant cultural note that they go, oh, yeah, I, I know what it's, it's like to feel free. And they hear this new teaching about freedom in Jesus. They mash the two up and form something that is subtly twisted and distorted away from the true teaching on freedom. It's 95% right with 5% soul-killing poison. Which, by the way, just as a quick aside, pause here. That's the nature of all false teaching. The only reason heretical false teaching can ever take root is that it's 95% right and 5% deadly. It's like a Werther's original. You ever had a word of this original? I'm sticking with my grandfatherly theme. This is the candy that your grandfather gave you. It's a beautiful and delicious, you know, kind of salted caramel melt in your mouth sort of thing. But, but heresy is like a Werther's original with a cyanide capsule embedded in the middle. Delicious on the outside till it kills you. 
and you won't know it until you get to it. That's the way all false teaching is, and that's what was happening in Corinth. We're free in Jesus. Let's drink tons of communion wine. Woo! Okay, you need to chill. You're misunderstanding freedom. Here's another example. I, 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 for years, was the director of Salt Company in Ames. I teach regularly on lots of things. One of the things that I did, we were teaching on the nature of freedom in Christ, and I quoted from St. Augustine, who said um, that really the nature of the Christian life is that we are called to love God, and then if we have loved God with our whole soul, soul, mind, strength, spirit, will, all of us is aligned with love of God, we should then go out into the world and do whatever we want. Love God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then do what you want. And so a guy came up to me after Salt and he said, so is what you're trying to tell me that I can go to drinking parties? And I was like, you took the phrase, love God and do whatever you want. And somehow, here's what you heard. Do whatever you want. Right? You miss the whole giant point, which is, so I said, is your whole heart, self, mind, and strength aligned to God? Do you daily live to glorify him with your body, to honor him in all things? Is he the sole focus of your life? Is everything of who you are devoted to him? Is that true of you? And he's like, well, you know, I go to church sometimes. I was like, no, hard no. Then, of course, it's stupid for you to go to a drinking party. You don't love God. You're going to abuse yourself and others. What are you doing here? You're missing the point. Love God and do whatever you want. It's not freedom to live in sin. Love God and do whatever you want is a reminder that actually for the person who's truly free in Jesus, you've been set free to live in a totally new way that flows out of the heart in love of God and love of others. So yes, we're free in Christ. But what, what does that freedom look like? Verse 12 says, the freedom we have in Christ needs to work out in wise living. All things are lawful for me, but here's the first principle of wisdom. Not everything is helpful for you. Okay, not all, everything you can do, you should do. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by anything, which means even some things that are lawful for you if you use too much of them, will dominate you and ruin you. Those two principles, you could ask it this way. Here's a two-fold test of wisdom to put on anything in your life. Anything the Bible doesn't spell out in black and white, you could put this principle test on it. Is this thing I'm considering doing beneficial and helpful for me? Question one. Question two, is this potentially addictive? Could this spiral out of control to dominate me and rule my life? Okay, so let's apply that test to the always popular college uh, guy subject of video games. Not to stereotype college guys, but all they do is play video games, all of them, all the time. I don't want to stereotype, but that's all they ever do. <laughs> and so, so let, let, is it beneficial to you to play videos? I mean, I don't think like, I don't know what the games are that people play these days. Snoop, Super Smash Bros. or something. I don't, I don't, know, what you, I don't know what you do. I don't, I don't, whatever you do, or you have, you have the... What's the thing that Elon Musk and his friends are trying to get everybody, the VR? Um, Oculus Quest. My kids have one. They made me put that on. All it did was make me dizzy. I sat down because I'm like a grandpa in my soul. I can't handle this stuff. And so 
But man, I could see how you could get sucked into that. You're in a virtual world. Is it beneficial to you? I don't know if a little dose of video games is terrible, but probably 12 and a half hours straight where you don't learn how to talk to a woman every in your life is going to leave you single, lonely, and deadly. Let, let's us grow up. So that may not be beneficial to you. I've never met a young lady at college who a guy goes up and says, you should see me play Super Smash Bros, who thinks that's a marryable partner. That's not something people are looking for. They're not looking for that, okay? They aren't. It's just true. And the second question, all things are lawful, but I won't be dominated by anything. If it's dominating your time and your life, it is potentially addictive, okay? Maybe the more adult thing, I talked to my friends thinking about getting a new car, you know? And they were thinking this, and I just said, well, is it beneficial for you? I do think a nice new car, driving down the road is generally beneficial, but it does cost more than the other, so you weigh the benefits. Is it potentially addictive? The new car smell is potentially addictive, I think, you know? So you, you just run the filter. So here's the point. True freedom in Jesus is the freedom to live wisely. It's the freedom to take the principles of wisdom and just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something. Here's the second principle of what true freedom is. True freedom, Paul's going to apply this principle of freedom and wisdom in one particular struggle area for the Corinthian church and the Corinthian culture, the question of sexual purity. And Paul says true freedom is purity. You are free in Jesus to flee sexual immorality. That's freedom. This whole section really revolves around the question of sexual immorality. In, in a brief review of context in the church in Corinth and in this letter, remember, that subject comes up a lot. Chapter 5, a gentleman is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the church is boasting about that. At the end of chapter 6, is teaching on lawsuits and things that were not appropriate for God's people. Verses 9 and following, did you see that? Don't you know the unrighteous one inherit God's kingdom? And he lists multiple cases of sexual immorality. No sexually immoral people. No men who have sex with men. No, no, no people of that sort of sexual perversion lived out in the course of life inherit the kingdom. The next chapter we're going to look at, chapter 7, will deal with marriage and sexuality. Why all this talk about sexual permissiveness? Why all, is it, all this focus on saying no to sexual immorality? It's because we didn't invent sexual immorality in 1998. Corinth was a perverse town. The, the center of the town of Corinth was a temple. And the, the temple at the center of Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite, goddess of fertility. And at the height of that temple, historians will say that the temple in the center of Corinth was serviced by a thousand temple prostitutes. Okay? It was common practice for the people of Corinth to pay a temple prostitute to give to the goddess and casual sex was rampant. And their thought was what we see in verse 13. Look at it again. Food is meant for the stomach. The stomach's meant for food. God destroys the one and the other. The Corinthian church is thinking something like this because this is what the Corinthian culture thought. If you're hungry, you eat. And if you desire sex, you have sex because it's just a bodily impulse. If you have an impulse, what's the harm in doing it? No biggie, no big deal. What does Paul say to this idea of what freedom looks like? Well, point one, he says this. No, 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 no. You are demeaning 
the importance of the physical body. He says God cares about your body. Verse 13, the back half of it. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord Jesus, will raise us up by his power. Why is this so important? Why does Paul emphasize the bodily resurrection of Jesus to make a point about why the body being used for sexual immorality is forbidden? Because the reason the Corinthians and the reason many in the ancient world said, well, it's just a physical impulse, what does it matter, is because they had to divide in their thinking between the physical, which was evil, and the spiritual, which was good. So if you have a physical impulse, what's the harm in it anyways? Your body's not that important. It's your spiritual self that matters. That is not Christian thinking. In Christian thinking, there's no distinction, okay? While there is a physical and a spiritual, they are so melded together in the human person that there's no such thing as a non-physical individual who is in love with God and following Him. You are forever in a body. Literally. The goal of Christianity is not to get you out of your body, to be free in your spirit, to float around like a disembodied being, like an angel on a harp with a cloud. That notion has nothing to do with Christianity. The goal of Christianity is that just as Christ was raised from the dead, physically never to die again, one day all who know him will be raised physically. What does that mean? You'll live forever in a body. So the body's not evil, the body's good. God created the physical world. So to say sex is just a physical release demeans the reality of physicality that God wove into his created world. Second answer that Paul gives here. Sex is just a physical thing. He says, no, 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 no. Sex is a mingling of body and soul. It's a deeply uniting act. It's not just a physical release. There's something deeper going on. Look again at verses 15. I want to show you this, 15 and following. Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the member of Christ and make them then a member of a prostitute? Never. Why? Don't you know that he who's joined to that prostitute becomes one, one body with her? For it's written, the two become one flesh. There's a uniting. He who's joined to the Lord is one with him. So to take the member that is one with Christ and now unite it to a prostitute defiles. You're bringing Jesus into that moment, is Paul's point. Matt Chandler, in his book on marriage, said that marriage is a mingling of souls. I think that's a good picture for what the Bible says is happening in the sexual act. It's not a mere physical release. It's a mingling of souls. And to treat that which is so deeply and profoundly connective as if it is a casual encounter will defile the soul and destroy the person. Anyone... Anyone who hasn't seared their conscience already knows this about what sex is. No one, this notion, it's just physical, whatever. Just go do whatever you feel like doing. Anyone who's honest with themselves knows it's far more than that. It's a mingling of souls, not just a connecting of bodies. And therefore, there's a soul-scarring effect if that which was joined together is ripped back apart. To act as if that unitive act is merely casual demeans the importance of who you are. You're more than that. They're more than that. We're not just bodies. 
We're body, soul, spirit, image bearers of a king in heaven. And to act as if that which is deeply unitive is merely casual will harm you and harm another. That's why verse 18 says every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a soul and spirit destroying effect to sexual sin. So can I just pause and give you a bit of gospel hope here? Because if I would have been sitting where you're sitting at numerous points of time in my life, I would have been thinking, where's the hole in the ground I can crawl up into to just sit there with a bucket of shame and hold on to it? Look back up in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians to verse 9. Don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Can I tell you, person broken by the pain of sexual sin, that God can restore you to wholeness in Jesus? Period. That's real freedom. Real freedom isn't just doing whatever I want sexually. Real freedom is the freedom to look at verse 18 and say, flee sexual immorality. Oh, that's what I want. Not because I'm just trying to stay away from something forbidden, but because I see the beauty of the good path God as my Father has for me. You could say it in the other. If flee sexual, sexual morality is the negative, what's the positive? The positive is to say this, pursue the beauty of purity. Pursue the beauty of purity. Oh, it's the best way to live. It's the best way to live. It's true freedom. Third point. We'll look at quickly here. True freedom is ultimately glorifying God with your body. You are free in Christ to honor God with your body. We won't go back through it, but sometimes just read back through this text and just underline how many times he uses the word body. Over and over again. Your body, your body, your body, your body. At least seven times in the text. The physical body is mentioned because your physical body matters to God. In fact, Paul goes so far as to make this utterly astounding statement in verse 19. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We may not be super familiar with temples, but the people of Corinth were. Remember what I said. At the center of their town is a temple to a goddess. The people of Corinth walked by that temple. They knew what that temple was about. The life of the town revolves around that temple. And what you realize is that this ragtag bunch of people now inhabited by the Spirit of God, the great God of heaven had come to reside inside of a new temple in Corinth. The Corinthian believers. The great temple of Corinth wasn't up the road at the temple to Aphrodite. The great temple in Corinth was a ragtag bunch of people filled with the true spirit of the one true God. 
Oh, their bodies mattered to God because God had so honored the body as to send his son Jesus to be clothed in the body and now to send his spirit sent by the son to inhabit the body of the believer. You're not your own. The Holy Spirit is a resident with you. You're sharing the one-bedroom apartment known as your body with the Spirit of God. You're a temple. And why can God, like, set up shop in your body? Why is he not like a freeloading friend just sitting on your couch not paying rent? Why? Because you don't own you anymore. God owns you. That's the point. Verse 19. Again, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own because you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Why do you glorify God with your body? Because it's actually not your body. He bought you. You are not your own. The title deed of your life has been signed over to God. He's made his dwelling place within you because he bought you. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Once you were a slave to sin, now you are a slave to God. Once you were owned by the master of your flesh, now you are owned by God and inhabited by His Spirit. And now it's time to serve Him because Bob Dylan, by the way, in an ancient song, ancient, you see what I did, kids there, right? That's a grandpa line, okay. Everybody's, got, everybody's gonna serve somebody. I'm going to quote from him, Bob Dylan, you might be an ambassador to King England or to France, you might like to gamble, you might like to dance, you might be the heavyweight champion of the world, you might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but everybody, you're going to have to serve somebody. That's true. The expressive individualism of our day says true freedom is the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want it, to serve nobody but me. And don't you realize what that is? That's bondage to me. Everybody's got to serve somebody. If the goal of life is to freely express your internal impulses in the outward world, then what you'll find true of you is what they found true of them in Corinth, that you will be mastered by your own desires. That the desires you think control, you control will control you because everybody serves somebody. Everybody does. So if everybody has to serve somebody, if everybody in the world serves someone or something, Here's the one question we have. It's not whether we're truly free. It's whether the master we serve is truly good. That's the question. Can I tell you how good the master you have in Jesus is? What did it take to buy you? You're not your own, but you're bought with a price. First Peter says we were purchased not with silver and gold, trivial things like that, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish. What did it take to pay the price for your freedom? The blood of the king of heaven. What other master in the world, when you fail him, lays his life down to save you? What other boss in the world, you walk in and blow it on the project, says not only I got you, but you're good, you're loved, you're perfect, you're great, I'm for you. What other king would do that? None. So if everybody's got to serve somebody, here's the question. Is what you're serving as good as the beautiful King Jesus? 
If everyone has a king, make sure it's a good one. What I can say is freedom in Christ is found when you realize that sets you free to say, God, here's my body. Use it as you will. It's yours. True freedom is honoring God with your body. So friends, today, Salt City, there is incredible freedom in Jesus. But it's not the freedom to live however we want, to indulge whatever we want. It's the freedom that Jesus gives that now set free from sin and self. We can finally live how we were designed to live. Filled with God's spirit, we can live the life of wisdom. We can live the life of purity. And we can glorify God with our body, which is his. Live in the freedom that you have in Christ. I pray for us, friends. So, Father, I pray for my friends here in this room. And I first just pray, Lord, a blessing over them. Lord, bless them and keep them. Cause your face to shine on them. Give them peace so that your way would be known on the earth, your salvation throughout these cities and to the ends of the earth. Let it echo out from this church. Bless them, Father. Give them a double measure of your grace. Far beyond what you've done in a cornfield in Iowa, set free in the cities of this place through these people filled with your spirit. And God, I pray that they'd realize the true freedom they have in Christ. The freedom set free from sin to live for the glory of a good king. Jesus, thank you. You are the author of life. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And oh, I was once a slave to sin, but now I rejoice that I have a good master in heaven. I pray for my friends here that they would find the incredible freedom of living to honor that good king. Jesus, thank you that you gave yourself for us. You bought us. So now we are yours. And collectively, we just with open hands give ourselves again back consciously to you. We're yours, God. Use us. We want to honor you with all we have. We pray to the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.